Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my co-host, my neighbor, Mr. Mark Daly. My friend, how the heck are you? I am good. Thank you very much, and happy weekend. Happy April Fools. Uh, <laughs> well, let's not uh, let, let's not play on that too much longer. But yeah, it is weekend. It is April first. Can you believe it? Like spring, the first quarter of the year is already behind us. We're into spring. We're you know summer's literally. Well, it's not literally around the corner, but it's it's coming fast. But I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward oh, to putting my feet up for the weekend. I just want to make sure before we get too far into this podcast, one, I want to give a huge shout out to Micah Boyce. He was the individual that moved mountains. He built castles. He helped us get new intro music for our show, which is something that we've been hoping to do for the better part of the entirety of my time with the show. It is live. (laughs) And big shout out to Micah. He's got connections. He helped produce that track. The actual artist is JT the Human. A big shout out to JT the Human for allowing us to use this track. I promise you we'll find a way to make you whole in the future. It is fantastic. You can find JT the Human on Spotify. You can find JT the Human on Apple Music. And I promise we will continue to flex all over this terrific intro music. But aside from that, one other housekeeping item before we get started, because we've got some super sexy topics tonight. Big shout out to Seth Whiteberg. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We did an interview with Seth a couple of weeks ago. We released it on Tuesday. The feedback so far has been fantastic, much better than I expected. If you didn't hear that, because you might not have been looking for a midweek podcast in a race week, please go and check that out. It's a lot of fun and super, super insightful. Plus, we have another interview coming up on Sunday, going into Monday with Elizabeth Blackstock. She's a writer for Road and Track, Jalopnik, and countless other publications. She's going to be joining us to talk about her new upcoming Formula One book and a number of other Formula One and motorsports related topics. Uh, that was a lot, my friend. I just needed to get it out of my system. Where do you want to start? Well, let, let's just clean the palette here and and set the stage. So since we don't have a race this weekend, let's just remind everybody that's listening what the standings Good are, call. the drivers Good and call. constructors. So we'll set the table that way. Driver standing. If you're a Ferrari fan, if you're Tafosi right la- right now, you got to be loving this. Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz leading the world championship right now, first and second. Max Verstappen is third. George Russell is fourth, and Lewis Hamilton is in fifth. So, I mean, we see a real theme there: Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes. Who else would it be? Long season to go. Will anybody rise up to the occasion and challenge any of the big three? We'll wait and see. But it's uh, been fun to watch so far. On the constructor side, it is. Not surprisingly, Ferrari on top, Mercedes and Red Bull are second and third, separated separated, pardon me, by only a single point. Alpine is fourth, and then Haas Ferrari all the way up in fifth in the constructors. So that's been uh, been interesting to watch over the first uh, couple of races. So, Mark, like you said, lots going on this week. 
where do you want to start? Well, of course, hey, we, we got to talk about Vegas. We're going to go to Vegas first because that is the big topic that that has been hinted and has kind of been, there's been a lot of smoke around that fire for several weeks, if not months now, but it became official this week. So why don't you tell us all about it? Yeah, Wednesday night, Formula One and Liberty Media announced that they will work together to promote a race on the Strip in Las Vegas starting November of next year. The race will be held in partnership with Live Nation Entertainment and the Las Vegas Convention and Visitor Authority, as well as founding partner Caesars Entertainment, MGM Resorts International, Win Las Vegas, and presenting partners MSG Sphere, Resorts World Las Vegas, and the Venetian Resort. So basically, everybody is in on this. Everyone that is anybody in Las Vegas, Harris County, the city of Las Vegas, the state of Nevada, Live Nation Entertainment, Liberty Media, and Formula One have come together to put on what should be the pinnacle or the flagship event of the Formula One calendar. And you noted a couple of minutes ago that this has not been a particularly well-kept secret over the last few weeks and months and really years. But to me, this is very much the darn near culmination of all of Liberty's ambitions when they entered Formula One. And I've talked about this a few times in the past that when F1 was bought by Liberty, Liberty bought it because they thought that there was untapped financial upside with the sport. Mm -hmm. And it recognized that most of that upside was in the United States. And you know, you look back at 2015, 16, the U.S. Grand Prix was in a lot of trouble. It was heavily subsidized by the state of Texas. They were right. in trouble yep. selling tickets. Liberty comes in. They transform the sport. But one of their visions from the very beginning was they wanted multiple races in the U.S. Because if you have one or two or three races, it's much easier to sell lucrative TV contracts to network partners like ABC and to ESPN. It's really tough to get the cable TV and the networks on side in the U.S. if there's only one domestic race. And if you look back to the 1990s, Gary Bettman in the NHL tried to do exactly that, which is, hey, it's 1993, there's 21 teams, seven of them are in Canada. We are never going to be able to get a big TV deal from a US network partner. So they expanded like crazy in Florida and Texas and the Sun Belt. Formula One, I believe, is trying to do exactly that. The race is going to be on Thanksgiving weekend. And this is going to be the really interesting part, my friend. And I'm dying to get your thoughts because you and I haven't talked about this. The race is going to be on Saturday night at 10 p.m. So for all of those on the East Coast, that's a 12 a.m., 1 a.m. start. For everyone in Europe, that's going to be an early morning start. Thanksgiving weekend, Saturday night race. What are your initial impressions of that? I'm really, really pumped. I'm really stoked for this because it is something completely different. And, you know, speaking as a selfish North American Formula One fan, I I'm excited that finally we get a big major event that is prime time, right smack dab in the middle of our weekend. And we don't have to do anything except park our butts on the couch and watch this. This is going to be really, really exciting. I mean, most of the time we have to get, I mean, this this past weekend in Saudi was different because just with it being a, a night race in the desert in the Middle East, it worked out that here on the West Coast, it was breakfast time on Sunday morning. And, and that was awesome. That was great. But this is going to be, I think, for Formula One fans, I mean, I can see people congregating, people having parties. Uh, I mean, not to mention the people that are going to be in Vegas to watch this one live. I think it's, I think it's going to be really 
really, really cool. I think it's going to be fantastic. And on a Saturday night, too, that's something completely different. I mean, if it comes to anything, I mean, is, isn't it always Saturday night in Vegas? I mean, I'm just throwing that thing out there. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's cool. I think it's awesome. The, uh, the, 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 what we've seen of some of the, the, the virtual renderings of the track and the layout of the track in and around uh, Vegas and down on the strip. And I think we just had uh, one qu- uh, comment in the, uh, the live chat from uh, uh, Elysia Gabriel, who said, I'm still wrapping my mind on how they're going to close the strip down for days. Uh, try weeks. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know question. about weeks. Great question. They will be, uh, you know, there, there will be a significant amount of time that's going to have to uh, be invested to put up all the temporary facilities, grandstands and things like that and certainly there will be a lot of road closures right up into before and after the the event uh, just to, so it's going to be inconvenient but i think if you're a fan and if you're in vegas i think it's going to be an amazing event i think it's going to set the bar i think it's going to raise the bar and set it to a new level for a spectacle in formula one and i think that's what they're aiming for here i think they're aiming for a spectacle i definitely agree and i don't think that any expense is going to be spared in putting this together. Obviously, the backdrop is going to be incredibly compelling. You're talking about the Las Vegas Strip with all of those recognizable buildings and structures and the signage. I I think this is going to be very exciting. The track itself, which we probably should mention, will be a 14-turn circuit. It'll run for 3.8 miles or 6.12 kilometers with top speeds expected to hit around 212 miles per hour or just under 350 kilometers an hour. We had some people mentioning earlier today that, hey, I know those roads and they're awfully choppy. They're awfully bouncy. Harris County, the city of Las Vegas have also committed that the entire the entire track itself or the roads that will be used for the track will be resurfaced just in time for that event. So it will be a brand new, very smooth street surface. Now, what's been reported, and again, I should probably take this with a grain of salt because it's the Daily Mail, which isn't necessarily the bastion of journalistic integrity, but the British tabloid, (laughs) the Daily Mail, is reporting that this deal is worth upwards of $100 million a year to Liberty and the Formula One group. And over 10 years, which is the expected duration, that could net Formula One a billion dollars in race income. Now, to put that into context, the current richest event on the calendar, and I think a lot of people can probably guess, is the Saudi Grand Prix, which is funded almost entirely by Saudi Aramco. That nets the sport $65 million. Qatar is close in behind at about $50 million a year, and a lot of the more traditional circuits, including Canada, Coda, uh, Silverstone Spa, they come in at around $20 million. So this is going to be a very, very, very rich event for Formula One. I'm not sure necessarily how the race organizers, who I guess in this case are kind of Liberty and it's kind of Formula One, are going to be able to cover that. But I think from a Las Vegas perspective, this is an extremely glossy marketing brochure for their city that they're going to be able to Mm -hmm. hold up to the rest of the world on that Saturday, Sunday, come November 2023. You know, I think it was funny because we were talking to a group chat, a group chat with our good friend Josh Cooper from The Athletic, and I think the comment that he made uh, earlier today after the news was made official is that, why is it that all of a sudden people realize that they can play sports in Vegas? Because, I mean, I guess it really went to a new level uh, several years ago with the Las Vegas Golden Knights joining the NFL, and then the uh, the, the Raiders are relocating there, now Formula 1. It's exciting, and 
when you see some of the pictures, uh, when you look at the strip, I mean, it just looks like it's made for for, for Formula One. I think it's going to be really, really awesome. But it begs the question, Mark, how is anybody going to report on this race? I don't know how this is going to work because, you know, there's that old saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So this could be a little bit awkward. I don't know how this is going to go, but you know, that's hey, okay, question. folks. I'm here all week and I'll let myself <laughs> out. <laughs> Dude, I have to ask you a question because it's never come yep. up in conversation before. Have you ever sure. been to Vegas? No, I've never been to Vegas. It's one of those things that you know we've always said, we're going to do it. We're going to go to Vegas. And it's like high on, I, I don't like using the term bucket list because I find it's just like overused by literally everybody on the planet. But it's one of those places that we've been meaning to get for. And we've kind of put it to one side because, you know, the kids are still growing up. And when they're a little bit, uh, a little bit more self-sufficient, then we're totally going to do more stuff like this but uh, how about yourself is self-sufficient in the sense that you will abandon them in your mansion in the suburbs of vancouver and go with just your wife that's right you know I like it. it i like <laughs> i like your style my friend you know I, incidentally i've never been either my wife has been many many times in the past but i've never been and honestly i've never I, i'm not a big We're like the last two people on earth that haven't been the last so. two people in our entire <laughs> province that haven't been i'm not a big party guy i don't drink so it's never been super compelling to me but this is a compelling reason for me to go and as much as i would like to have gone to miami which i, I was simply priced out of maybe there's an opportunity here and hey any racing publication out there that's looking to toss out a couple of credentials to help cover this event I know a couple of lonely Canadians that would love to participate. Now, one other thing I will add quickly while we're on the topic sure. is there has been an overwhelming amount of negative feedback online, particularly from European fans, about the mm. fact that we're going to have three races in the United States. I think it's it's probably pretty useful to know that the United States is a country of 350 million people, which is pretty comparable to the continent of Europe. And of course, Europe has over 10 Grand Prix. So I don't think it's necessarily unrealistic that maybe you have three here. And if you go back to 1982, so I know we're going back 39, 40 years, but back in 1982, when Formula One had just a 16 race calendar, there were three races in the United States. That year, you had a race in June in Detroit mm-hmm. on the Detroit street circuit, which is very similar to the street circuit that they're going to be using for Indy coming up. That was back-to-back with Canada. Uh, you also had the United States Grand Prix West at Long Beach in April. And then you actually concluded the season on the 25th of September. Imagine that, the Formula One season ending on the 25th of September. But you ended the season <laughs> in Las Vegas. So there's certainly precedence for this. And there's precedence for three races in the United States in a significantly shorter calendar. The one question, and we did a spaces chat earlier tonight with Tim, and there was a lot of conversation about Las Vegas, but one of the questions mm-hmm. that came up several times was just the timing. Is is the is the long weekend the right time? And one of the listeners made a great point that it seems like they're trying to build a new sports custom during a weekend that's dominated by family time because it's Thanksgiving. There's a lot of people traveling and that weekend is saturated with football. So it probably makes sense that it's not a dusk race. It's not a Sunday race. It's a Saturday night race because that's probably Mm -hmm. the only time on the TV calendar that they weren't going head to head with an NFL or a college football game. The only other time slot that it would work against is uh, when they throw it up against whoever the Detroit Lions are playing against on Thanksgiving Day, because why why did that become a tradition? We've got a lot of listeners in Michigan. Come on. 
I, I'm not throw. Oh, I'm throwing shade at the Detroit Lions, but uh, I, I don't want to throw <laughs> shade or like upset the great people in Michigan. I, I just I feel sorry for for them because that it, it's just a painful franchise to watch. You know, yeah. long gone are the days of uh, Barry Sanders. I mean, he's, uh, I don't know. I don't know a lot about the uh, Detroit Sanders other than I know that Barry Sanders was an amazing running back. I still the, remember the day he game. retired. I was I was. Yep absolutely glued to sports radio KJR from Seattle for like an entire day listening to that yeah. happen. That was a big deal. But oh, it's big uh, news, right? We get off topic. I, I guess the other question is, what does the 2023 calendar look like? Like, I know you and I were excited to look at 2021. We were excited to look at 2022. Yep. 2023 is going to be crazy because we know Russia is not going to be on there. We're expecting China to come back. How are we going to fit all of these races on the calendar? Now, does France drop off? Where do you put this race on the calendar? Do you do you glue it together with Austin and Mexico City and Brazil? I, I can't conceptualize like we know where it's going to be on the calendar. I just I don't know which races don't make the cut when it comes down to the game of musical chairs in the 2023 calendar. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's crazy. There's so much stuff out there. And, uh, you know, when you look at it and uh, let's see, I got to pull my notes up here somewhere because, well, well let's talk about first who we might uh, keep and or who's going to be around for a while. So yeah, Bahrain's contracted until uh, 2036, which is incredible. Saudi's yeah, Saudi, Australia, Italy, and, and when I say Imola, Italy, I'm talking to Imola here, not Monza. They're under contract until 2025. Miami's under contract to 31. Barcelona is um, on under contract until 2026. Monaco is uh, under contract uh, supposedly until the end of 2021. So obviously the notes here says renewal be negotiated. So I'm sure that's going to happen. Uh, Baku is only under contract until 24, the same as uh, Silverstone and uh, and Monza and Japan. So there, there's a bunch in there. And then you've got uh, some other interesting ones here. So after not having a Canadian Grand Prix for a couple of years, Montreal is under contract until 20, uh, 2029. And then there's a bunch of uh, uh, races that have their, uh, pardon me, the words are failing me at the moment. Their contracts expire at the end of this year, including Austria, France, Belgium, uh, who else, uh, Mexico, and then that's it that I can see. So what we have here is um, uh, Austria has a multi-year option, although I don't know on which side is the the option, if it's the the, the host or Formula One. Uh, Zonfort and Hollands, they are under contract till the end of 2023, and they have an option to extend that until 2025, which considering you know how much the Dutch love Max, that would just seem like a bit of a, a slam dunk. The one race that I never thought would stick around, and I'm thinking specifically now, or saying specifically right now, is the uh, Hungara Ring, the Hungarian Grand Prix, which uh, came online in 1986 when there was still a communist country. They're under contract until 2027. Singapore, where we have been obviously for a couple of years, they're under contract until 2028. And uh, oh, Coda, that's an important one. Of course, that's uh, very popular with the uh, the community here. Coda's under uh, contract until the end of 26. Brazil under contract till 2025. And the same with uh, with China, should we get back to uh, uh, to Shanghai. And then uh, Abu Dhabi is um, 2030. And Qatar, which of course we're taking a year off this year because of the World Cup, they will be under contract until 2031. So we've got some... 
you know, some long-term deals in there. And I think we were talking about, was it only last week about the possibility of going up to a 30 race uh, season? Liberty said, what was it a, a year or two years ago, maybe even a little longer that they had interest from what was it? 40 venues from around the world. And it certainly seems like that interest is there. And we, we had that discussion on what that potentially could look like, because there's going to be such a huge amount of uh, potential venues, racetracks, and you have to wonder, some of them are going to have to to drop off and which ones are going to stick around. What, what do you think, Mark? Like, like, What do you think is going to be a realistic look at the 2023 uh, calendar. Do you, do you think Mexico is going to come back? I mean, those are the ones I think are the the obvious ones we should talk about. Mexico, Belgium, France, Austria. Those are all up at the end of this year. I I'm I must admit I think I'm I'm very skeptical to see if there will be a French Grand Prix because I mean that seems to be heavily subsidized by uh, taxpayer money. Austria, that seems to have been a pretty good race. I mean, if they have an option, I would expect to see that uh, exercise. Belgium, I would be surprised if they didn't find a way to make Spa happen again. I mean, that is just such a, a fantastic historic circuit, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. And then Mexico, I mean, there's been talk over the past couple of years, again, you know, heavy subsidies from the government, and there's been some how do you want to put it some opposition to that from from you know people that uh, you know that money's coming out of their pockets to fund that race so though those would be the the two that i could maybe expect to potentially see disappear how about yourself it's really hard for some of these races that rely on state subsidies to survive in the faces of in the faces in the face of events that are willing to fork out 50 or 65 or 100 million dollars a year. I think the good news with respect to Mexico is while the track isn't ideal for racing, at least with the previous spec of cars, it might be different this year. Uh, it yeah. has been a blockbuster success in that country. But to your point, it has also received very generous subsidies from a, a government that's under pressure from the public for spending money in a more accountable way and spending state dollars to host a Formula One race that very few people in that country can actually afford to attend isn't necessarily a great way to get reelected. I hope Mexico stays on. I think it's really important. <laughs> Important, but it would be very easy for Formula One to chop that race off the calendar and just slot slot Vegas into that swing through North and South America. But I hope it stays. I would say we're very, very, very unlikely to see France back. And I know that there's officials in France that are saying we would love to be able to alternate with another European venue or another venue and host a race biannually. I still don't think that's logistically logical. I think that's probably not going to happen. I know today, but on, I, I on don't our... hate that idea though, because you know if they're not able, if they're not in the position to do that, I don't necessarily dislike that idea because we've seen some really fantastic tracks like uh, Hockenheim, the Nurburgring, etc. Just to to name a couple right off the top of my head that uh, do not host Formula One races. Maybe that gives them the opportunity to do so, right? 
I mean, all power to them. And your that was a point that Ben Nasta brought up on the Spaces chat tonight, which is, hey, if they're willing to do it, great. And honestly, if if France, if Paul Ricard and Hungora Ring, not the Hungora Ring, if Hockenheim want to get together and say, hey, let's host this biannually and just alternate or rotate, and that's something they're comfortable with, awesome. I just I look at it from a business perspective, and it costs an obscene amount of money to build and maintain a Formula One grade racing circuit and yep, to host yep. an event biannually probably doesn't probably doesn't provide you with enough revenue to cover the cost of managing and and keeping that track to formula one specifications i just think that would be very very challenging but i would expect that france would drop off now this week there has been sweeping speculation across the web that nobody's been able to substantiate that they're looking at possibly dropping spa given the sheer amount of money that the race organizers in that country have spent upgrading that track in the last 18 months i can't imagine they would have sunk that capital into that track if there was any threat that they would lose that event but i think next year we'll have china back and i think that's pretty much guaranteed at this point china will be back vegas will be on the calendar russia is gone and i think france will be gone yeah yeah it it certainly is interesting and uh we'll just have to see how it evolves but like i say i don't hate the idea i know that's not a ringing endorsement (laughs) but i like i say i'm very much in favor of the idea of alternating it uh, between circuits that uh, that aren't able to if they don't have other circuits that are lined up and have the funding sure. in place to, sure. to host a race, right? So anyhow, hey, Mark, uh, let's take a, a quick break here. When we come back, it's finally time to talk about another situation where there's a lot of smoke and potentially uh, a fire. And I'm talking about the VW Group, Audi, Porsche, etc. This has got to happen at some point. This is just we've been talking about it for months and months and months now. It's back in the news. We'll talk about that in a moment. So don't go away. Uh, we'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. You're listening to The Marks, Mr. Daly, Mr. Hamilton, talking about the latest Formula One news. And we were just, um, well, the first segment, we were talking about Vegas. We were talking about what the new uh, calendar might look like next year. 
I, I still, Mark, I struggle to see how they could expand up to 30 races. I know that the framework isn't there inside the Concord agreement to, to do that currently. I just think that the discussion itself is interesting. So, well, you know, watch this spot whenever so this news talk about. Uh, it, it is. It is a lot of fun to talk about, but uh, I am legit stoked for that uh, Vegas race to come online next year. So, as I mentioned uh, just before the break, we're going to talk now about the VW uh, group. And it sounds like they probably will join Formula One in 2026 with possibly maybe two teams an audi team and a porsche team and they're going to do it maybe with their own engines i mean this is a bit of a different discussion than we were having even three four months ago at the end of last year before christmas because they were going to have this big meeting uh, with the board there and they were going to make the the speculation was that they were going to make a decision then and we, we were just wondering well how are they going to come into formula one are they going to come in as an engine supplier? Are they going to come in as a constructor? Are they going to basically be a startup? Are they going to buy a team and then basically rebadge it with uh, with Audi or Porsche or Volkswagen or whatever? But this, I think, is fascinating that they are actually thinking of entering both of those teams, developing their own engines for each of it. And it's it's crazy because, I mean, they're talking about a billion euro investment which may or may not get a uh, the green light, pun intended, uh, at a meeting of the group board of management and the group supervisory board in April. So this seems like a continuation of the last time they were going to have a board meeting back in the beginning of December. It's just the scope has evolved significantly and gotten much bigger. Your thoughts, Mr. H? Yeah, I, first of all, I want to praise you because I typically put together an agenda for the show. I put it together on Monday. You and I kind of go back and forth throughout the week. We add topics. We we take yep. topics off. It doesn't matter what story I put on, whether it's in Dutch whether it's in German, whether it's in French, you are able to read all of this. So first of all, all the kudos <laughs> to you because you seem to be able to speak every entrenched language in Western Europe. So that is awesome. But this story is fascinating because I was absolutely convinced that they would have one engine supplier in the sense that you might have a Audi badged engine and you might have a Porsche badged engine, but ultimately the factory producing said engine would be the same. Now, I'm reading here from a translation of a Business Insider article, which is what stirred a lot of the conversation this week. So I can't necessarily speak to the accuracy of this article, but it indicates that Audi and Porsche initially wanted to save costs with a jointly developed drivetrain, meaning that, again, they're both going to brand engines, they're both going to partner with teams or buy a team and become a works team, but ultimately they would have the exact same power unit. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Apparently... Porsche boss Oliver Bloom is instead planning an exclusive partnership with Red Bull and without Audi. So Porsche has decided we have the autonomy within the Volkswagen group. Screw you, Audi. You do whatever you need to do. We are going to partner with Red Bull and we are going to produce a partnership with them. So presumably in this scenario, they would take over the Red Bull powertrains division that is being developed. Now, this is where it gets even more interesting. Audi boss Marcus and I can't pronounce this last name, so apologize, Marcus Dousman actually remote or reacted quite emotionally to being forced to go along. According to people close to the subject matter, in meetings, he had complained that he had in fact been betrayed by the Audi or by the Porsche boss, Oliver Bloom. 
He in- indicates that the original plan internally within the Volkswagen Group was that the two teams would always share a power unit, but instead they're now going to have two completely separately developed power units. So it sounds, according to this Business Insider article, and again, I can't speak to the authenticity of the translation or how accurate the story is or the sources, but that Porsche will partner with Red Bull. It will be a Red Bull Porsche team with power units developed by Porsche. So Porsche would take over their powertrains division. Audi, on the other hand, is looking to sink 500 million euro or about $550 million into buying McLaren. And presumably Mm. that includes the road car division. Now that number may seem a little bit low. Do you think the valuation of that team plus the road car division would be bigger? That team is drowning in debt. So that purchase would also presumably assume they would take the debt. So Audi would produce their own power unit for the McLaren cars and Porsche would develop power units for Red Bull and Alpha Tauri. And then potentially Williams would become a customer team of one of those two groups. So again, this is all just reporting based on sources. You and I can't validate any of these, but it is incredibly, incredibly fun to talk about because the whole topic or the line of conversation and narrative was, hey, two badges, one power unit. Now it could potentially be two badges, two power units, which is incredibly interesting to talk about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just love love the way that this conversation and this whole topic has uh, evolved. And I I couldn't help but think that, you know, that that fit with Red Bull and the whole RBPT business really makes sense that they would uh, do something and and, and take it over because this whole Honda leaving Formula One saga is it's such a tangle, right? Is because they come out and say, well, we're leaving, we're pulling out of Formula One, we're, we're completely pulling the plug, and we're concentrating on our uh, road car division, and we're going to go all, all electric by whatever the date is. But we're, you know, we're, we're but now we're not really leaving and, it, you know, we're still going to give them support, but, you know, we're, we're not really. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still basically a Honda engine. It just has, it has a Red Bull powertrains, the logo and rocker cover on it, right. whatever. I mean, right. it, it's just interesting, but where it gets really fascinating is that Red Bull d- is not allowed to do anything with that IP. It's basically, well, I mean, number one, the rules dictate that this engine formula is frozen to 25 or 26 anyways, but just the way with all the legalese and everything, the way that that uh, deal was brokered with Honda to keep uh, supplying them with these uh, powertrains for the next uh, several years is that they don't own any of that. They can't take any of that 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 intellectual material right. and right. use it as a basis to develop a new powertrain moving into 2026. So in effect, you have this, what you think is this great setup for them to be an out-and-out constructor in their own right, like Ferrari, like uh, Mercedes. But now they're kind of they're kind of handcuffed to an extent, right? Because, okay, we're good for the midterm, but not for the long term. And then so that you have like the, the VW group making a lot of noise, a lot of rumblings that, yeah, we're going to come on online and we're going to have, like, like we were talking about three months ago, we're going to have one powertrain or one engine with uh, two different badges on an Audi or a Porsche. But now it gets even more interesting, like you say, that you could potentially have two. And that, again, becomes extremely fun to speculate about and talk about. But I couldn't help but think, and th- this is going to be a bit of a stretch in uh, in mental g- gymnastics here, and, and bear with me. And and this is no sort of slight uh, intended at the VW group, but I can't help but think that in part, maybe a very small part, that the willingness to spend and invest this sort of money, and of course, with two 
elites and very luxury brands like Audi and Porsche is in part VW trying to distance themselves from that scandal that we saw several years ago. I mean, they got caught first with like the defeat device in their in their road cars and everything like that. And don't really need to get into that. And I'm not suggesting that's the reason why they want to get into Formula One. I just can't help but think that in part that that doing something like this is part of turning over a new leaf or a new page in the book for the VW group as a whole. Just try and leave a lot of this unpleasant stuff in the past and, and try and get out front, get into somewhere in, into in different areas and Formula One being one of them. I mean, I love, uh, we talked about it at the time at the end of last year where they finally started to flex on these uh, V6 turbo hybrid engines. And there's a lot of positive things around Formula One until we talk about you know, the Saudi Grand Prix or which we'll do in a few minutes, but I don't know. What, what do you think about it? Do you, th- do you think there's something to that? I mean, it's not their sole motivation, but like I say, I can't help but think in part, this is part of them turning over a new page in the, 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 uh, the next, the evolution of the VW group, put it that way. Yeah. I think you summed that up really well. And there was a couple of articles that I read today and I, and I apologize. I cannot remember where I read them. Otherwise I would reference them, but one of them absolutely spoke to the fact that part of this could be brand rehabilitation based on what happened all those years ago with the Dieselgate scandal. And it spoke to the fact that ever since that happened, Volkswagen has invested more in electrifying its fleet than any other mainstream automotive manufacturer. And the reason for that is because they're they're trying so desperately to distance themselves from those dirty diesel gates allegations. Well, I guess they weren't necessarily allegations when it was all actually true, but they're working <laughs> really, really hard to yeah. establish themselves as a front runner when it comes to electrification. And yeah. one of the things that I read today was that one of the outstanding issues that needs to be resolved, or one of the outstanding questions that needs to be resolved around the 2026 power units. So right now, the power units are effectively frozen until the end of 2025. They'll be scrapped and all of the teams will be rocking an entirely new power unit for 2026. One of the unanswered questions about the 2026 power unit is how they will be fueled or how the internal combustion engine will be fueled. And apparently the Volkswagen group is waiting for confirmation that it's going to be entirely synthetic fuels or entirely biofuels. So until they get that commitment from the FIA and Formula One, they're not willing to commit because they don't want to commit to a racing series that's seen using or seen using established petroleum products when by 2026, they'll have intended to have moved a significant portion of their portion of their uh, road car fleet into electrified and hybrid plug-in hybrid vehicles. So for them, it's not a good look to invest in a sport that's still using uh, refined petroleum when their entire fleet of cars are electrified. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I, I said a lot. Sorry, I was rambling a little bit there. No, I, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that was a story that I think that um, is something that broke towards the end of last year. I remember discussing it at the time that I, I think that was something that we were particularly interested in is, okay, well, we we don't know what the new generation of power units is going to look like, but there was a lot of talk at the end of 2021 that certainly something that we're going to see is more exotic, newer biofuels and things like that, which, you know, I know is really nerdy stuff, but it it's 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 fun to talk about and again you know it, it's just not the innovation and the technology that goes into the formula one uh, into a formula one car which is of course amazing 
from every single component from nose to tail on these cars, but also now what they're putting into it. I mean, the, the fuel's always been exotic, but I mean, it, it's just, it, it becomes really fascinating when you look at all these different things, be it like the bigger tires, you know, the, or the, the wheels and, uh, and newer tire compounds. And then you look at like the, the aero package that they have on there and a new power unit and synthetic fuels, whatever it might be. It's, I, I think it really demonstrates the ingenuity and a lot of the fascination that we have just with the technology that goes into these cars. And I think that's why personally, I'm a little bit getting impatient as to, uh, you know, why we, there, there still isn't an announcement on what these new generation of power units is, is going to look like. And that's just me being me. I, I just want an answer. I know that this is something that's going to take some time to develop, but I'm just, I'm excited for it because I'm really enthused and 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 really curious to see the direction of the sport i think we've kind of landed at this point when we've had these discussions over the past year or so that eventually just the way that society and technology is moving is that eventually they probably will go to some form of um you know like completely electric power units right and this, of course, is just speculation on our behalf. But I think where we get excited is where's the technology going to take us in the meantime? Because we, we have no idea if and when they're going to get to like an all electric power unit. But uh, it'll be fun to watch in between. So your thoughts on that, sir? Yeah, it's only that. Uh, and this is probably good recap for those of you that maybe haven't been listening for a long time. 2026, we're going to see a new power unit. And by the way, the reason we say power unit is because the cars generate horsepower from more than just the internal combustion unit. It's a combination of different components. So what we know for 2026 is we'll continue to have a very compact 1.6 liter V6 turbo engine. The big difference is that the MGUH, the component that generates heat or captures heat and converts it into electricity from uh, exhaust gases coming from the turbo will be scrapped because by all accounts, it's an incredibly complex and expensive component. And the MGUK, which is the device that generates energy energy from wasted kinetic um, energy is going to be amplified significantly. So what we know is there will be significantly more power generated from electrification. And it's understood that upwards of 350 kilowatts will come from the MGUK system. So that's the system that captures wasted energy from the braking process and sticks into a battery, which can then be deployed by the driver. So we know a little bit, we just don't know all the fine details at this point. We don't know the size of the turbo. We don't know all the details around the MGUK. And we certainly don't know how these cars are going to be fueled. But to your point, you know, eventually, I can't imagine that 20 years from now, when Mm -hmm. government regulations worldwide have outlawed the sale of petrol powered vehicles, that we're still going to have a Formula One series that still relies on some kind of internal combustion engine, that transition is going to happen. But I think if we can get to a place where it's a hybrid and it's an ultra efficient V6 turbo, and it generates a ton of electrification from the MGUK, and it's powered by some sort of synthetic fuel or a biofuel, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty good transitionary step to an all electric future whenever that comes. Yeah, you know what would be really interesting if they could um, just correct the difference between, say, a Formula One car and your average road car, 
and just put them on the same level playing field that, okay, this is what your Prius gets in terms of fuel mileage day to day. How would that compare against a Formula One car? I mean, obviously, you're looking at a car that is generating several hundred horsepower compared to a road car. But it'd be interesting if you could find like a common baseline and just correct for the differences where they would come out, right? Well, think about it this way. And I've never actually processed this until you said it right that minute. An average Formula One race is how long, like how many kilometers? And you think about the fact that they don't refuel during a race. So a Formula One car, like markedly, is absurdly fuel efficient and it can afford to be fuel efficient on the petrol, petrol in the engine because it generates so much of the energy from electricity. But a Formula One car is actually staggeringly fuel efficient. And we talk about the thermal efficiency of these energy, energy or engines. There's zero wasted heat relative to a road car like their thermal efficiency shatters anything that you would expect to see from a from a street car and that's simply because they pour hundreds of millions of dollars into research and development to make sure the engines are but they are yeah. actually staggeringly fuel efficient well, you know, and the times that uh, they do have issues when it comes to the fuel, you get situations like we saw last year with Seb Vettel not having enough fuel in the car in, the, in that Aston Martin. Where was it in Hungary? He didn't have the minimum amount of fuel left, and that robbed him of a really, really g- a good race result. I can't remember. Did he get on the podium or close to it last year? Yeah, finished I second. I can't remember. Second, second. Yeah, there, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And uh, how soon we forget or how soon I forget. But I, I mean, the, the the times that they don't have that uh, that minimum that they have to, to keep in reserve uh, in the scrutineering afterwards becomes a major piece of news, especially in a situation like that. But another thing, too, just to dial it back was just the, the whole discussion about the complexity of the uh, these engines, because that was another that's a topic that we haven't really heard too much of uh, since the end of last year when there was talk that all the teams had basically agreed to dump the MGUH just because it is such a complex piece of technology to basically remove one of those massive hurdles that is uh, blocking other, well, I wouldn't say blocking, but maybe acting as a, a bit of a a real deterrence to other uh, manufacturers like Audi or the the VW group as a whole from coming into Formula One. And a lot of these other uh, teams or the uh, engine uh, providers in Formula One are willing to to make that sacrifice just to level the uh, playing field a little bit. And even though there hasn't been uh, discussions about that, that's why I'm getting a little bit uh, impatient about the whole lack of progress on it because, you know, there there seemed like at the end of 2021, there was a lot of discussion about that. You know, Total Wolf is saying that and uh, Mario, uh, sorry, uh, Bonatti is saying this and, and uh, you you hear this stuff like uh, more about like, well, I mean, VW group is obviously back in the news this week, but it's just, uh, it's interesting. That's what, that's why I'm impatient. I just want to see where it's going and we'll get there eventually. It's just, you know, no, no concrete news in the meantime. F1 and the FIA, who ultimately dictate the terms of the engine formula, are in a really unique place, right? Like they sure. could they could come out and say, "Look, you guys want a simple engine? Here is a naturally aspirated V8, meaning there's no turbo, there's no hybrid, there's no MGUK, there's no MGUH," and everyone balk at it because they're like, "Well, that's not road relevant." Manufacturers aren't producing new V8s without super efficient forced induction, without hybrid systems. So they go and they develop an ultra advanced compact V6 1.6 liter engine with a turbocharger and two separate hybrid energy recovery systems. It's too complex. 
So they have to walk that back a bit to make it more attractive to manufacturers because you need to constantly be attracting manufacturers. And like Tim said on the spaces tonight, you can't have them pop in, spend a couple hundred million dollars, lose a bunch of races and bail again. You need to find a way <laughs> to keep them satisfied and keep them in the yeah. sport long term because it's good for them. It's good for the sport. But it is this weird balancing act between developing a fairly simple engine formula, but also developing an engine formula in a way that is relevant to road cars during a time in history where all the manufacturers are in this massive sweeping transition away from internal combustion engines to mm -hmm. fully electrified or plug-in hybrids. So it is a weird period in time, to be honest. And to your point, like I would be fascinated to know where we are in 10 years because in oh, 10 totally, years, right? we would be five yep. years into the new formula. And then we would probably be looking five years ahead to what replaces that engine. And at that point, are we going to go fully electric or are we going to be 60% electric? Are we going to have synthetic fuel? Like at that point, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, they can kick the can so far down the road, but at some totally. point they're going to have to, to to do it. And I think that a lot of this is just, I wouldn't say like a time saver, but I, I think it sort of preserves the essence of what Formula One is and what we've been used to all these years while they navigate the the uncertain future in I front agree. of us totally with, without sacrificing the um, you know the performance of these cars to where the uh, the electric power units can be developed more to the point that um, we, they could seamlessly make that transition right so anyhow hey mark let's take another quick break when we come back uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about uh, the saudi arabian grand prix there was a lot that happened off the track last weekend for the wrong reasons we're going to dive into that in a moment after a short break so don't go away we'll be back right after this short break with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Time to uh, change topics here a little bit. So the drivers uh, are going to meet with the Formula One's bosses to bring up a bunch of concerns from uh, last weekend's race in Saudi Arabia. Of course, the, uh, the 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 big news that happened literally right after we hung up the the mics and the the headphones after last week's uh, show was there was a rocket attack a rocket attack on a nearby oil facility uh, near Jeddah, and we we basically at that point when we woke up here on the west coast of uh, North America on Friday morning there was a lot of uncertainty as whether or not that race was going to uh, to go ahead ultimately it did I mean it was it was a, a great spectacle for for us to watch but there were a lot of concerns you know at the track itself Mark you're a lot more familiar with the you know the cultures and the situations over there I know that you've uh, do some other things uh, so maybe you're a little bit better prepared to speak about this topic than I am yeah 
And I think we should probably do a quick flashback to last Friday. And in my experience, it's it's funny. I was actually super excited for the Grand Prix because I get to, in my newly built office, I have a beautiful 55-inch TV in the wall. So hopefully my bosses aren't listening, but on Fridays, I can put on free practice in the background and I can kind of just (laughs) monitor it out of the corner of my eye. I promise I'm still working. But when I tuned in last Friday morning, I, I noticed that there was a counter on the screen on the broadcast counting down to the start of free practice too. I'm just like, that's kind of funny. And my assumption was that there was a red flag in free practice one. That was a big crash. Makes sense. It's Jetta. It's a super dangerous track, super yep. high speed, close concrete walls, uh, no tech pro barriers. So it kind of made sense. And it wasn't until after free practice two, when I think I went to CNN or one of the other big news sites that I learned that there was a rocket attack on one of the Saudi Aramco oil facilities. And I'm not sure if it's a refinery or a storage facility, but there was a rocket attack. And I was just like, my gosh, that's so crazy. Why were they not talking about that during the broadcast at mm-hmm. all, which became a theme throughout the weekend. And there was a lot of people that were criticizing Sky and, and the F1 TV producers because this was happening in that city and you could see the smoke billowing in the background from the track and they weren't quick to address it during the broadcast. It could have been because they didn't know what was going on could also have been that they were being directed. So regardless, at some point during free practice one, there was an attack on an oil storage facility on the outskirts of Jeddah itself. And the facility was owned, of course, by Saudi Aramco, which is a state-owned petroleum company, and also the title sponsor of Formula One, the title sponsor of this event, and the title sponsor of Saudi Aramco. Now, if you if you know the geography of the Persian Gulf, of the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia is the biggest country in the region, and it is bordered on the northeast by Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, and then along its southern border is a country called Yemen. And Yemen has been in a very, very unfortunate situation for the better part of the last decade. There's an ongoing civil war. Uh, it's alle- or alleged that there are multiple state proxies involved. We know that the Saudi government's involved. We know that the Israelis are involved. The UK has been involved. France, Great Britain, and a number of different countries. The unfortunate outcome is that whatever infrastructure was in Yemen has been destroyed. And it's in a really, mm. really, really awful situation. There's a horrific humanitarian crisis there. And I plead and I hope that the global community comes and, and embraces that situation and helps provide some relief. Now, the rocket attack that hit the Saudi oil storage facility is from an opposing force or a force that's opposing the Saudi intervention in Yemen. And they have been dropped missile attacks into the United Arab Emirates and into Saudi. Now, a lot of these are intercepted by security or Saudi security forces. This one, unfortunately, was not. Now, the Houthi rebels, who are the ones that fired the, the missile, presumably were intentionally targeting infrastructure as opposed to civilian targets. My suspicion is that they did so intentionally because they wanted to shine some light on the situation in Yemen. Now, as the weekend progressed, we get into Friday night, you, me, we're talking back and forth, we're messaging with Vincenzo, and the situation's getting a little bit dire from a racetrack perspective because the drivers came together and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's now been reported, it was unanimous, that the drivers came together and argued, we don't feel safe proceeding. They were Mm. then 
I don't want to suggest strong-armed, but they were then convinced by the team principals and by the Formula One brass, including Stefano Domenicali and Ross Braun, that they should proceed and that it was safe. And it's been reported that Saudi security officials and race organizers came forward and also said, look, you guys are safe. Here's some evidence. Here's some documentation. We should proceed. Ultimately, the drivers relented and said, okay, that's fine. And they proceeded with the race. But there was a real scare there on Friday night because of the proximity of this missile attack to the racetrack that the race wasn't going to go ahead. And fortunately, there were no there were no um, casualties in this attack. As we've been doing this podcast, by the way, I've begun to develop friendships with people all over the world. And I've met some fantastic people online that live in Saudi and that live in Jeddah. And before doing this podcast, I would never have had the opportunity to meet those people. So I've learned a lot more about the culture in Saudi, spend a lot of time in the region. I've never actually been to the kingdom and I want desperately to go because I want to experience the culture and meet the people. But obviously I reached out to them right away. Are you okay? Is your family okay? Everything was good. But what it did do is raise the specter of the drivers objecting mm. to racing there permanently on the grounds of security, not to mention all kinds of other questions that are asked of the Saudi government. Mm. What this did do is raise the question of the power that the drivers have in determining when and where Formula One holds races. And to put this into the context of North American sports, if you look at the NFL, if you look at Major League Baseball, if you look at the NHL, and if you look at the NBA, there are players unions. And with the exception of the NFL, which is a bit of a disgrace, those players unions are incredibly powerful. And they hammer out collective bargaining agreements with the owners. And they do these on every four, five, seven years, whatever the term of the agreement is. But it dictates a number of things. It dictates the conditions under which they play, determine the cities in which they play. It determines the cut of the revenue that the players get versus the cut of the revenue that the owners get. It determines the length of the playoffs. It determines the length of the regular season. So the athletes in North American sports have significant influence on their standard of living and their experience playing their sports. In Formula One, the Grand Prix Drivers Association isn't necessarily a recognized institution, and it has no influence over the Concord Agreement, the technical regulations, or the sporting regulations. And I don't want to come across as being too sympathetic to the drivers because they're living the dream that all of us would have had when we were in our teens and our 20s. Sure. Yep. They make millions of dollars, they travel the world, they're on a global platform and they get to race drive Formula One cars. That's that's a pretty cool existence. But I think what we discovered this week was the drivers maybe don't have as much sway or as much influence into the calendar and when races are as held as maybe they should. So the question this week was, should they have more and what influence should they have? And should there be an organization that better represents the interests of the driver? So that was kind of a long preamble that just sets up a question for you. Like, I'm curious about your thoughts on this one. From a driver's perspective, should they just be signing these contracts knowing that we agree to the terms that are established in the Concord Agreement? Or when the Concord Agreement is being signed, should some sort of group that recognizes the interests of the drivers better communicate that to the sport? Yeah, I can't but help um, but wonder if uh, maybe something like that will uh, develop in the future going forward, because I, I think it's interesting if you look at some of the things that were said after the you know after the weekend, I'm looking at a, a report here on skysports.co.uk, and Total Wolf had to, to say the following, quote, when the team principals talked to the drivers, I think we what we talked was sense and not at all any pressure, but maybe that was perceived in a different way. 
in the end, the show and the spectacle were amazing, and what we delivered as a sport was great, and this is what a, sh- a sport should do, end quote. So you compare that to, to what Max Verstappen uh, had to say. He said, quote, we had a lot of guarantees that, of course, we would be safe, but I think after this weekend, all the drivers also together, we will speak with F1 and, of course, also the team bosses to see what's happening for the future. And then his teammate, uh, Sergio Perez, uh, said, quote, I think there's definitely some considerations that we will have to do as a group and see what's best for the sports go- or the sport going forward, end quote. So it's interesting because, you know, the, like you say, there's a, a bit of a perception or there, there, the thought was that the drivers were strong armed uh, to a certain extent to participate in the race. And Nototo's kind of, he, he's walking that back a little bit. I, I think he's very careful in the, uh, the the language that he said. And then Max and, and Sergio are kind of agreeing with that, that, uh, you know, they were given these guarantees to participate in the in the race that you know everybody was going to be okay because i mean regardless i mean we we, we talk about on this podcast quite a bit every time there's an accident we talked about after msc's big shunt there at jetta during qualifying on saturday that the safety of the drivers is, is paramount but i mean the safety of everybody is important it doesn't matter if you're on the track you're in the pits or you're in the stands but we, you know we usually just limit that conversation to what happens to the cars on the track you know should there be a big accident number one that the drivers are protected then the track workers the you know, the mechanics and the you know the people in the stands that should debris come off a car like a wheel a right, piece of body right. work that somebody's not going to you know suffer some really potentially serious or fatal injury right that the discussion at least until 2022 did not include the possibility of uh you know rocket attacks and things like that but you know it, it's unfortunate too right uh, just the, the this whole incident because you know as you say i mean you know in, in yemen there's this very unfortunate civil war that's been going on for the better part of the decade and i i think the way that you described it in our group chat was it's not that simple guys it's very nuanced the situation you know they're, they're, you know and i would expect when you have things like like geopolitics and 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 you know all these different interests going on that, that, that it's there's more to what uh, meets the eye but it's just you know you, you take that aside i mean even when saudi was announced as a uh, you know a host for the grand prix there was a, a lot of you know, there, there was a lot of, um, you know, opposition to it because, uh, you know, the country unfortunately doesn't have a great human rights records right. for certain right. things. And I think that was great, too, like what Sebastian Vettel did last year when he when when they went there, you know, he had that private day for uh, for 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 uh, female um, uh, drivers and just to, to sit down because he, he basically said, you know, who am I to come in? I'm a visitor here. Who am I to, to, to see the situation on the outside of the country to be critical about it without really knowing what, what, what what's going on? He said from the outside, you know, a lot of things don't appear great, but then he got to know some of the people that live there. And he said it gave him a whole new perspective, a whole new way to, to, to process and see everything through a different lens. So it's just it, it's a very, you know, it's it's a very strange situation just all around. And, you know, thankfully, and I mean, all, although the the, the da- damage to the uh, the oil storage facility or whatever it was, was extensive, at least in terms of a uh, human cost, there was none, you know, not even any uh, any injuries. But it, it yeah. leads to a bigger discussion now. And, and, and I think that's where it's going, because. 
you know, moving into 2023, I mean, as we were talking about in the first half of the show, what's the calendar going to look like? We mentioned that Saudi's under contract uh, until 2025 at Jeddah, and then they could go to this. Where was it? Kadia? Where's the, the new purpose-built track? Kadia. Kadia, yeah. Yeah, outside, yeah. Or outside of Riyadh. So I mean, this like the 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 government there, the the uh, the uh, the the uh, the officials in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia have uh, given guarantees that there won't be any issues like this uh, going forward. But you know, it, it really does. You know, you, you have to develop that, or you have to take that conversation out because of Valtteri Bottas, uh, the uh, Alfa Romeo driver, says that um, Formula One has told the drivers that they will reconsider where races are staged if they cannot 100% guarantee the safety of everyone involved. And, of course, you can never guarantee everybody's safety 100% of the time. You can't guarantee that somebody's not going to get into a car accident when they go to the track or they're going to get mugged. But, you know, at least, you know, you you have to think, okay, when you're at the track itself, that for whatever reason, your viewing experience is going to be safe. And, you know, we, we live in a very complicated world. And what would this, you know, push to expand up to potentially 30 races and based on what they've done in the past, they've gone to some places, to put it mildly, have raised eyebrows and, uh, you know, people have started to ask for what Formula One might be some very awkward and uncomfortable questions. And I think we've gotten to the point now, they can't dodge these questions any longer, right? Well, I I think one of the outcomes of going to some of these countries that have been challenged is that it opens up a line of dialogue and there can be better understanding and it can shed light on humans, human rights issues that might not otherwise be discussed in a global context. And I did want to read a couple of quotes here from the Saudi Saudi officials that are responsible for the race. So they are very, very adamant that they will sit down with Formula One and listen to their concerns to ensure that they are addressed prior to going back in 2023. So here's some quotes from Saudi Arabia's Minister for Sports, Prince Abdulaziz bin Turkey Al-Faisal. He said, and I quote, we are open to sit down, see where the issues are, what the assurances are they need. Whatever they want, we are here to host F1 as best as it can be anywhere in the world. So we will definitely have an open discussion with them to see what their feedback is, to discuss with them and see what their concerns are about and show and we will show everybody. Now this is where it gets a little bit more interesting because I like I like how transparent he is with the mm-hmm. opportunities that exist in that country from a social and economic mostly from a social development perspective. He says, and he continues, we are here for a long-term partnership for a reason because we see where we're going. We want to grow with the sport. We know the importance of F1 and we want to be part of the international community. We want to be present. We want everyone to come to Saudi Arabia and feel as if they're going some or anywhere else in the world. These issues, unfortunately, do happen. They happen everywhere in the world and we have to deal with them in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. He explained further how the arrival of major sporting events like Formula E and F1 have forced the country to open up and be more accountable. One example is that Saudi Arabia, and I'm reading here from motorsport.com, one example is that Saudi Arabia has already had to change more than 200 domestic laws to allow major motor racing events to happen. And he continues, we were always accused of for being shut out, he said. The first tourist visas happened because of Formula E. It was the first time that we issued tourist visas because of that event. From there, suddenly, we have gone from one of the most difficult visas to acquire to one of the easiest visas to acquire with, I think, more than 50 countries' visas upon arrival and so on. Nobody understood what Saudi Arabia is. We're telling to the world to come and understand what Saudi Arabia is. 
but now we're being accused for being too open. We're doing things very, <laughs> very, very quickly and so on. At the end of the day, there is a drive because of this. The people want this. If the people didn't want this, it would not have happened. But the people want this. They see they're all engaged in social media. They see what other countries have. And I'll just add to that last comment because I think that's a pretty good summary of the situation that Saudi Arabia is in. So for those that don't understand, Saudi's demographics are very unique in that it mm. has a youth balloon, which means that a significant proportion of their population is very young and is very vibrant. And it grew up consuming Western and global media, social media, television, satellite TV, mm-hmm. DVDs, Blu-rays, cinema. They've grown up consuming what we've grown up consuming. And they have a different perspective on how life and culture should be than maybe older generations of Saudis who are probably far more conservative than they are. So the Saudi government's in this unique situation where you have this demographic youth balloon that is demanding, insisting on change. And Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi, came really swept into power in the previous five or six years with promises that he would continue to show progressive policies and liberalize the countries. And it's debatable about whether he's done that or not, but the commitment that the Saudi government has is that they will continue to modernize and liberalize. And if Formula One can go to this country and hold them accountable to that and challenge them in some way, I think I think that ultimately that's a maybe a good thing. I love the quote that, uh, that that he says. You can almost see here a little bit of uh, consternation, a little bit of frustration in that one sentence. That we used to be uh, accused of being too close. Now we're being accused of the opposite of being way too open. <laughs> I, so like I don't it, think anyone's accusing them of that, to be totally honest. <laughs> Yeah, that, 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 I thought that was a bit of a funny one. Hey, Mark, that, that was a great discussion. Why don't we take one final break? And when we come back, let's talk about everybody's favorite Spaniard. And I'm not talking about Carlos Sainz at the moment. I'm talking about Fernando Alonso. We'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Welcome back. Not quite time to turn the the lights off and call it a night for another or call it a show for another week, I should say. Fernando Alonso, he is now, what, 42 years old, 41 years old? Anyways, he says he wants at least another two or three years in Formula One. And of course, uh, he took a bit of a sabbatical away from Formula One's uh, for a couple of years there. He was in uh, endurance uh, racing. He tried his hands at uh, Dakar Rally and the Indy 500. Back to Formula One last uh, season with uh, with Renault or Alpine, I guess, when they rebranded last year, and he said, of course, he wants to uh, he, he wants to stick around, and he says he still has a lot to offer. He says he's still enjoying Formula One a lot. He is enjoying racing, and he's enjoying all these things because Formula One is not only an activity on the track, but you have a lot of activities off the track, and he enjoys all of those as well. And he says uh, he hopes that for at least another two to three years, we'll see him around. And and what do you think? I mean, 
when we saw him last weekend scrapping it out there with his teammate Esteban Ocon in that first phase of the uh, the the Saudi Grand Prix, he was looking pretty racy. I thought he looked pretty good. It was unfortunate that his car ultimately let go and he was forced to retire from uh, the, the the race. And I know he's a bit of a polarizing uh, figure. I know he's one of those guys. I think you either love him or hate him. And I, I think there's a lot more people to fall into the former rather than the love him uh, category. But I think he can still drive. But I guess the big question in his mark is, can he still perform at the level that's required of a, of a Formula One driver being on the wrong side of 40? But compared to, say, what we saw with Kimi Raikkonen over the last couple of years, I think that Fernando at least has something to stand on to make these comments, whether or not you know he can pull it off that's that's a different question but i i think that uh i think he's i i think he can make the point let's put it that way i don't think you know how there's that expression you don't appreciate something until it's gone sure. i don't yep. think he appreciated formula one as much as he realized he did until he was out of the sport. So he had Fair. that awful yep. three, four, five year run with McLaren and it was a mess and it was a toxic. And then he was out of the sport. And I think he immediately realized how good he had it. He had one of 20 seats in the world. He absolutely did not respect the team. He did not respect their engine supplier. And he realized <laughs> I just left, I just raced my last Formula One race. And I think when he got the opportunity to come back to Formula One after two years out of the sport, I think he absolutely for maybe the first time really respected and appreciated the opportunity and if you look at his conduct on the track off the track again there's constant lewis hamilton slander because that that distaste and that that competitive thread runs deep with both him and lewis but he's been a revelation on the track this year he's looked incredibly racy as you described in saudi he looked phenomenal i was so sad for him that that engine let go towards the very end but mm. even off the track he was incredibly respectful of that duel with esteban Ocon. and i look back five or six years ago i can't imagine a scenario whereby he would have shown that much respect on the track <laughs> and off the track to the yeah. person that he was racing totally. and he was very very respectful of Acon, and I think you yep. look back at those those McLaren days. He was frustrated with the team. He was frustrated with the team leadership. He was frustrated with Honda. He was frustrated with his teammates. Nothing made him happy. So I think when he was out of the sport for two years, it really reset his appreciation for being a Formula One driver. And I think now it's desperately clinging on as long as he possibly can. And I think he's valuable to Alpine because if you look back in 05 and 06 when he won those dual titles with that team. He's deeply embedded in the fabric and the history of the team. And I think they'll probably let him race as long as he's competitive. And there's certainly some other drivers that are going to be out of contract soon, including Pierre Gasly. He, of course, Fernando Alonso is only under contract until the end of this year, but I think he'll stay as long as he can. And I think the team yep. will keep him as long as he continues to be as racy as he has been. He had more pace than Ocon on, on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, and I love that scrap. I thought it was good hard racing. Absolutely. Neither of those guys like put each other into the into the wall and uh, or, or caused a crash, which is like the cardinal sin in 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 motor racing is if you take out uh, your teammate or cause a you know, a crash with your teammate and retire both cars. I thought it was great. It was exciting to watch, and for the first time in a long time, I like yourself. I felt sad for him when he retired at the end of the race because he looked uh, really really good, but. 
you touched on uh, Pierre Gasly and Helmut Marco said something which I think is um, pretty obvious to the rest of us. And uh, he said that uh, Red Bull, the organization as a whole, that is, is, is pretty much likely to u- lose Pierre Gasly if they can't offer him a return to the to the to the senior F1 team. I mean, he's had some very, very good good uh moments with alpha tauri obviously he won uh, at monza and uh, th- that was phenomenal that was exciting to watch i mean he's a great talent it, obviously it didn't work with uh, red bull proper a couple of years ago but i mean they're not great when it comes to their their, their young drivers i mean we, we saw it happen with danny kiviat we saw it happen with gasly i mean they've they've been i think a little bit and i can understand why when, when you're a big team like that that you need both your your drivers to perform but the thing is they're, they're going to have to make a choice then and what we've seen from sergio perez uh over, at least over the last uh, couple of races and i'd argue over the the last several races of 2021 is he's really found his groove i mean he's been around in formula one for what a decade now i mean he, he's not a young guy i mean pierre's i mean he's he's younger but i mean he's not like he's 20 years old anymore but he's i i think he's one of the names to watch and, and see where he ends up going because unless checo really stinks let's put it that way for the rest of the season i would find it really hard to argue against uh, bringing him back i mean the way that uh, you know that whole minister of defense thing in abu dhabi at the end of last year in the finale the way that he did what he needed to do to help max i mean ultimately i mean lewis got around him ultimately he passed max i mean let's forget the craziness and that whole situation at the end of the race with the safety car we don't need to go there but i mean that was great racing i was disappointed in bahrain when it looked like we were going to see that same scenario play itself over sergio's car lets him down he retires same thing happens to max but the, the the point is he's been really good so far this season he was on pole it looked like he was going to finish at least on the podium until he got caught out by that whole safety car when nikki had his crash in saudi last weekend so i i don't know i i'm just kind of struggling and unless they make that tough call to to uh, ditch sergio perez and then replace him with gasly i just uh, i don't know but i i think that gasly might just be better served for his own personal interest to 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 move on beyond because you got to think that even if he gets that seat back in red bull at the back of his mind because there's going to be no guarantees i mean nobody does each other favors in pro sports because okay this is what you did last weekend okay great well what have you done for me today and (laughs) the the you know the, the you know the patience runs thin and i think that yeah i don't know i'm just not convinced i think pierre would be better to move on if he if he gets a, a good offer from uh, from from a good team. What are your thoughts, Mark? I guess the question is, what team would that be? I mean, certainly, yeah. I think there would be teams that would be excited to have him. But you got to think McLaren's pretty committed right now to Lando Norris. Yep. He's under contract through the end of 2025. Ricardo's under contract till the end of 2023. And again, let's be very honest: Formula One contracts are. Worth, aren't worth the paper that they're printed on and they can be torn up mid-contract. We saw that with Sergio yep. Perez in Force India. He signed a three-year extension and that deal was torn up by ownership and tossed aside midway through. And obviously there was some sort of buyout. I think the question for for Sergio Perez fans is how confident are you securing that seat long-term given his age? And could this become another Valtteri Bottas uh, George Russell situation where you have a driver with the A team, with the big team, with the 
the mother team, the father team with Red Bull, and he's helping them potentially win constructors championships. And let's be honest, Valtteri Bottas, Bottas helped Mercedes win straight five straight titles, and he was still ultimately shown the door because they had a younger talent in George Russell. And let's be honest, Sergio Perez is now in his 11th season in Formula One. Maybe he'll help him win a title this year, but if Pierre Gasly continues to surge, are, are you foolish for keeping this younger talent at Alpha Tauri, knowing that he's got no obligations to stay with you when his contract is out? Like, I feel yeah. like those conversations need to be happening. That thank you very much, Sergio. Uh, here's the door, or hey, we'll find you a seat with Alpha Tauri, or you know, we'll work with another partner team to find you a ride. But I just, I cannot believe that Red Bull would be so incompetent to let Pierre Gasly out of their out of their grasp. And if that means letting Sergio Perez go, you got to do it just because of Sergio Perez's age. He's on the wrong side of 30. And that's not to say a 30-year-old driver can't be successful, but if Mm. Pierre Gasly is showing comparable pace and what should technically be an inferior car, and he's not, he's not because it is an inferior car, but if he's showing comparable pace and great racecraft, why would you not bring the younger driver into your team? Oh yeah, totally. And uh, and another thing uh, that we should mention too is that Sergio Perez is at Red Bull to perform. He's not there because he has a very handsome sponsorship package that he brings with him because they don't need that sponsorship money. They've got, you know, they're they're able to Great call. Great do, call. Yeah, I mean they're they're doing quite well on their own, let's put it that way. So uh, in a team like that, the, the second driver is going to be somebody that 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 that's there to perform. And they had a really good one-two punch there for a couple of years with Max and Ricardo. And then once Ricardo left after 2018, it's been a bit of a revolving door. Sergio didn't settle down immediately. I mean, it took him, what, a good two-thirds of the season to really find his groove there last year. But he's come out swinging this year, and I think it puts them in a very interesting position to to make that call. Because as much as I love what Alpha Tauri's done, and I love how Pierre won that uh, that race at Monza, that was a great, great moment. Uh, it, it was it was an underdog story for for you know basically the feeder team for Red Bull proper, and you just couldn't help feel happy for for all of them, right? Because it's just one of those wonderful stories that you see from time to time, but. It's just hard to see Leo, where Pierre could uh, potentially go if he wasn't to, to stick with the Red Bull organization, either with Alpha Tauri or or Red it's Bull. Got to be Alpine. They, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, that that's potentially another one. You know, there, there's the uh, you know him being a French driver, the French team. You know, there's that natural conclusion that uh, you can kind of draw there. But it's just like unlike say Ferrari or Mercedes. They don't have any other partner teams other than Alpha Tauri to really kind of exert some pressure on. And like, say, uh, Mercedes did try. I mean, obviously, that didn't work out with, uh, you know, Nick DeFries and uh, getting him a seat at Williams last year. But uh Interesting, nonetheless. Um, you mentioned Lando just now. Jensen Button, former for, former world, sorry, former Formula One world championship or champion. There, I got at it eventually. He was a little bit critical about Lando signing a long term deal to the end of twenty five with the McLaren this earlier in his year. Uh, Jensen had to say, uh, "Quote for Lando, it was surprising that he signed such a long contract at the start of his career. We all want to be team players, but you never know where the team is going to be in three years, and also this is going to be a." big hit five years to go and he's going to be like oh okay but then he can go uh but all he can do is go back to the team tell him what the issues are and try to resolve them and quote well what, what do you think uh, i'm not so sure that i agree with uh, with jensen on this one i mean 
it's yeah they've had a bit of a tough start to the season so far compared to a lot of the 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 other teams and compared to where they've been the last two years they don't seem to be in as good of a position that doesn't mean they're gonna they won't figure it out but i i don't know i mean I don't necessarily agree with what Jensen had to say. I mean, if you're in a good place and you're happy, why not, right? Jensen's so funny to make this comment. This is the guy that signed a three-year extension with uh, with McLaren on the cusp of them making the transition to the Honda Power Unit. So he signed a three-year extension at the last year of the V8 era going into 2014, and they were a total disaster. So for him to make this comment, maybe, maybe it's based on self-reflection saying, hey, at that point in my career, maybe there should have been other opportunities and other things that I could have looked for. But McLaren is in a much better state now, even despite their slow start, than McLaren was in in 2013 when he signed that deal. They were not, for all intents and purposes, competitive at that point and they were embroiled in scandal and Ron Dennis was running the team into the ground. So I find it funny that that Jensen Button can make these comments. I think the other thought too is one, there were no obvious opportunities for Lando Norris coming out of last year, coming out of this year. And I think Formula One careers are so incredibly fragile. It's not like the NBA where there's 450 jobs or the NFL where there's a thousand jobs and there's feeder series and minor leagues and all kinds of second opportunities. In Formula One, there's really no second opportunity and your career is incredibly fragile. If if he was to not sign that deal and he has a really tough campaign with McLaren, there's no guarantee that there's going to be a lavish deal available. There's no guarantee that there would be a deal available at all. So I think he signed... He did the smart thing, which uh, was a long-term contract was made available to him at a team that he was incredibly comfortable with and at which he's enjoyed some success. It was just a logical no-brainer to sign that deal. Yeah, I, I can't help uh, but wonder if uh, perhaps uh, Jensen's comments were colored a little bit by the fact that they've had a pretty rough start to 2022. Maybe I think, I think if- you're right. Yeah, and I, I don't want to take anything away from Jensen. I have a lot of respect for him. Is uh, he was on the, the 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 commentary on Sky Sports last weekend? Um, but yeah, I, I just couldn't help uh, but think that maybe if the situation was uh, you know uh, different than it was, and they'd done well in Bahrain, they'd done well in Saudi, that perhaps maybe he's looking at a little bit uh, different. So, moving over to Haas uh, after Mick Schumacher had that big shunt during qualifying, they're looking at a repair bill of up to one million dollars. I mean that car was a complete uh, write-off. Uh, apparently, the impact was in excess of 33 Gs or 33 times the uh, regular force of gravity we experience on our bodies each and every moment of our lives. It's uh, crazy. So yeah, they're, they're looking at about three quarters of a million pounds just to, to bring it across, but it's crazy. Hit the wall at turn 10 at over 270 kilometers an hour. It's just, uh, it's nuts. I, after he was okay, I was st- and I was relieved about that i was starting to kind of go over some of those things in my mind because whenever you see one of those big crashes usually in the the investigation afterwards they come up and they sort of give you an indication of what the impact was i mean 33 g's holy smokes no wonder he was a, a bit of a sore boy afterwards but thank goodness uh, he was okay um former well one of the former team principals of aston martin and one of their previous guises as uh, jordan midland spiker in force india fellow by the name of Colin Collas has come forward to say that, uh, well, he's been kind of critical of a uh, new boss, uh, Lawrence Stroll, doesn't really see them uh, going anywhere uh, as a race team, doesn't see you know the you know, 
Lawrence's endeavors just to pump uh, money into the team is uh, not being enough. I agree to his, um, you know, some of those comments. I, I think you can't just throw money at an organization and just expect that you're going to win. Uh, you know, we, we've seen plenty of examples in multiple sports uh, on that. And I mean, w- we've heard some stories recently that maybe Lawrence is micromanaging a little bit more than we, we kind of expected him to. But yeah, I, I don't know. I know we're, we're a little bit of homers when it comes to Aston Martin and the whole Canadian connection to that team, what with the the, the strolls and their involvement uh, in it. And I, I think that when you make big investments like that, when you in, and and you invest over the the medium to long term, I think that you are going to go through some growing pains. And I don't think that you're necessarily going to hit a, a home run in your first or second or maybe even your third at bat. Yeah, I think Lawrence Stroll was very careful in the few media appearances that he's had over the course of the last couple of years to undersell the rate at which he thought this team was going to be competitive. And it was always, hey, we want to be competing for world titles in five years. And, you know, winning a world title isn't required of this team. We just need to be contending for them. I think it's becoming pretty clear that he's very anxious with how this team is performing, how it performed in 2020, how it performed last year, and how it's performing now. And obviously, last year was very much a write-off, a sunk cost for Lawrence Stroll and the Aston Martin team because they wanted to go all in on 2022. And and so far, it's been a bit of a, a disaster for them. They struggled to get both cars out of Q1 the first week. Hulk got out, Stroll didn't, which is a shocking, shocking blow for that young driver. And And every report that you and I have seen and everything that we've read is that as the team continues to struggle, Stroll is continuing to tighten his grip around the control of that team, meaning that he is more intimately involved in every decision that's happened. So I think you and I have been huge homers and advocates for Lawrence and what he's done and the money he's invested in that team, saving Force India, potentially with that consortium, saving the Aston Martin road car division from irrelevance. I think at this point, they need to show us the goods. I am I am beyond frustrated with this organization. I'm frustrated with Lance as a driver. I think he should be doing much better than he is. I, I don't yep. see the eagerness. I don't see the passion. I don't see the hunger. I think off the track, he's far, far, far too... Oh, relaxed given the circumstances of the team. And maybe that's because he's got billions of dollars to fall back on. But I'm frustrated <laughs> now with the entire stroll experience. And I just think with the sheer amount of resources that they're throwing at this thing, that eventually they're going to figure it out. But at the same time, I'm not confident in crack. And I'm certainly mm. disillusioned with the fact that they hired Martin Whitmarsh. I thought that was a terrible hire. And to put that organization into the hands of that individual to me is hugely problematic. And I strongly expect that the back half of the season is going to be plagued with rumors about what's going to happen to Seb because I don't see Seb coming back with this team next year. And then the question is going to be, who's going to replace Seb? Who's going to want to replace Seb? I think this team's in a a fairly dark place right now. And I think a lot of it is less to do with the Mercedes power unit. Earlier tonight, we had a really great spaces chat with, with Tim. And Tim Haraney had basically spoke to the fact that Aston Martin, Williams, and and Mercedes are being forced to turn down the power units in their cars because they've so underdeveloped the chassis and the underbody downforce and ground effects that the power units are capable, but the development of the cars is lagging so badly they Mm. can't afford to turn up the power units because it just exacerbates and amplifies the issues that they're having with porpoising and bouncing. 
which I thought was a really interesting and logical take. But I'm, yeah, I'm fairly disillusioned on Aston Martin. Given where you and I were 14 months ago, that we were we were flying the Aston Martin flags proudly above our castles here in the suburbs of Vancouver. I think we've come a long way to be so disillusioned and frustrated. Yeah, I think we've kind of put those back into the closet uh, for, for, for <laughs> the time being. Yeah, yeah. So one final thing uh, before we we turn off the lights here for good uh, this week is that uh, there was an announcement that came out earlier this week that at the uh, U.S. Grand Prix at Coda in Austin, Texas, on the weekend of October the 24th of this year, that uh, there they've announced uh, a series of uh, concerts over the, uh, the the festivities for the entire weekend that is going to include Ed Sheeran and Green Day. They're going to have a lineup of more than twenty bands on the uh, Germania Insurance Superstage on uh, Friday night. It sounds like it's going to be a, a, a lot of fun. So I, I was jealous of everybody that went to Coda last year, but uh, sounds like it's becoming a, a real thing, like the, uh, the 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 festival around there. And it sounds like it's uh, going to be a, a lot of fun again this I year. I just want to read a quick story on that one. So one, that is one hell of a concert lineup for a Grand Prix. That is stacked beyond stacked. But here is a story from motorsport.com dated March 12, 2016. Analysis, how Coda used Taylor Swift to save the U.S. Yeah, Grand Prix. Yeah, that's right. Wednesday's I remember that. confirmation yeah. that the U.S. Grand Prix will go ahead on schedule address the big question mark over the 2016 Formula One calendar. The race had been listed as provisional by the FIA, but now it would appear that we are guaranteed the first ever 21 race season. This is just five years ago. That is how fragile and delicate the U.S. Grand Prix was on the calendar. They couldn't give away tickets. They couldn't sell tickets. The race was mired in controversy because it was extracting massive subsidies from the Texas state government. And in 2016, they bolstered ticket sales dramatically by bringing Taylor Swift in for the concert on the Sunday. So it's interesting that now six years later, five years later, it's a blockbuster success without the concerts they're selling out they're selling every ticket at incredible prices and and they're still bringing in great concert acts it's it's crazy how things can change in six years yeah tell me about it right and well i know that there was a a lot of criticism uh, from from people last year as well like uh, just like the organization at the track seemed like it was kind of thrown together like sort of last minute i don't know we weren't there but Hopefully, whatever they do is, uh, you know, that, that it lives up to the hype because that, that, that sort of head of steam, the excitement for that weekend at Coda is starting to build all, already. And it's still, what, six months away, eight months away? I, yep, I've kind yep. of lost count. I mean, it's, it's, it's a long way from now. And there's a lot of racing between now and then, but already so many people are, are getting excited to heading down to Austin uh, for, for that one. Anyways, I think that's about it that we have uh, for this week. Thank you all for uh, listening to the show. If you want to get in touch, by all means, do so. Please send us uh, a tweet at f one pod Send us an email at f one pod at gmail.com. If you like the show, please you know do us a, do us a solid. You can leave us a, a rating review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you download and enjoy your podcast from. We would really, really appreciate that. And that's it. On behalf of myself and Mr. Mark H., have a great weekend. Uh, Look out for that interview with Elizabeth Blackstock, which will drop at the beginning of the week on Monday for your commute back to work. Enough from that because enjoy it when it drops because I don't want to get people thinking about Monday on Friday. So I'm going to just I'm just going to shut my mouth right here. So anyways, guys, have a great weekend. Talk to you guys soon. Bye for now.